I invite you to open up your bulletin. There's a handout for you to follow along with. Make shopping lists, draw pictures, however you want to use that paper, it's yours. Uh, we have been in a series called The Step of Yes, and uh, we're wrapping it up. We are, uh, we're down to, to just a couple of, uh, of left, two, two left here. And uh, The Step of Yes has, has been... Um, has just been an incredible series. We've, we've been in the Old Testament. If, if you would, and you know where it is, take, take your Bible. And if you don't have one, there's one right in the seat back in front of you. And I want you to find where the New Testament begins. It's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Uh, and if you need to, go look up the, uh, you know, in the table of contents, find the book of Matthew, and then just put your finger there, okay? What we said at the start of this series is this, is that God has left for us the whole council of Scripture, 66 books that really form kind of a library communicating God's love story to us. What happens sometimes is we're intimidated by the Old Testament. Or maybe it's just a little bit more difficult to understand. It's not as accessible to us. There aren't as many uh, easy-to-find nuggets of just devotional thoughts like there are in certain places in Scripture. But if you have your finger in, in the start of the New Testament and you just kind of look at what's left of your finger and what's to the right of your finger. To neglect the Old Testament because either we're biased because it's old um, or because we don't want to put in the work or effort or it's just hard to understand or there's those genealogies or uh, these, you know, these cultural things that I just don't quite get, then it's to miss a giant chunk of God's communication to us. So it's been an incredible series. We're, we're about to leave the Old Testament for a season. We never really leave it because we, we reach back to it. But it's been so rich for us to be able to look at these individuals that God has left for us to learn and glean from. It's, power, it's powerful to think that God is giving Christians today what they need by people who lived their lives yesterday. And it's one thing to study it. It's one thing to, to read it and get some good tidbits about it, to fill out bulletin sermon notes about it, to discuss it as a community group. It's a whole other thing to, to learn from it. You see, you can see someone do something uh, wrong. <clears throat> I've shared before, I came from a, a family of, uh, of three brothers. Two of them are older. I learned a lot about how serious my parents were about curfew from my older brothers. So... I didn't like to work, and I watched my brother paint the back fence, I watched him pull weeds, I watched him do all kinds of extra work, because he was late, so I clued in and thought, huh, they're really, really serious about that, I'm going to show up before the curfew, and not have to work, and so that's how I, I, I gleaned from them, but I could have seen their poor example, and gone right ahead and done the same thing, so as we look at these different individuals, my prayer for you, and I hope you're your striving has been, God, help me to really glean from it. Help me to learn from these, not just study, not just go through the exercise of studying them. We've looked at a lot of different people, some of them well-known, some of them very obscure. Some of the lives that we looked at are lives to emulate because we see their faith. We see their immediate response of yes to God. And others are, are lifestyles to avoid, choices to avoid. We've seen some uh, what are called types of Christ. They're, they're like pointers to the Messiah. We'll, we'll see one of those today where you see these characteristics and, and traits, and then you see it lived out perfectly in Jesus. Romans 15, verse 4 says this, For whatever was written in former days, this is written in the New Testament, so it's talking about the Old Testament, was written for our instruction, 
that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. God recorded the lives and events of these people and saw fit to record it for all of time so that we could, uh, we could have instruction, but also so that we could be encouraged. Literally, that word means to pour courage into. So when you see people walking in the face of temptation, walking this, this Christian life, it's to pour courage into us. The Step of Yes series involves walking, and we talked about the fact that walking is so ordinary and so mundane and so plain. We're, we're kind of looking at the highlights of these lives, but there were a lot of days and weeks and years lived in between the high points, just like ours. Remember the idea of leaving for a trip? Leaving for a trip's exciting. Man, the first few minutes, that's exciting. Woohoo! We're on the road. We're, we're, we're driving, you know? Middle of I-5, going to L.A., is that exciting? Say no. No, that is not exciting, right? That is very, very boring. And if you're from there, I'm sorry. Welcome to San Jose. Lots, lots better here. Arriving at a journey is awesome. You pull up, you're like, we're here. You know, that's a good thing. So this, this middle part of the journey, just that faithful walk, one step after another, not always so exciting. But we all start the same way. First John 2, 6 says this, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. You know what that means? If you name the name of Christ, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, it means one thing. You ought to simply walk like him. Uh, some of you were here for this, but we brought Connor Shelley up. Connor Shelley at the time was one of our newer uh, people that existed. There is now like an entire apartment complex of new people that make Connor Shelley look exceedingly old. Um, but Connor came up here, and he demonstrated for us how we all learn to walk. He sat here and he had, he had his dad up here and Connor just walked around. And when you think about a child walking, there's all these newborns around that'll be so fun to, to watch them learn to walk. I hope it's a reminder for all of us. We all start the same way spiritually as well. You know what happens when a baby learns to walk? It, it's, I mean, it's utter comedy because you've got usually two walkers, people who know how to walk on either end, and they're encouraging them back and forth, right? A little bit like badminton. You're just sending this, you know, this, this person back and forth. And the child is, you know, I mean, it's this. And the parents are, ah! you know, like this. And, and there's, you know, there's near disasters and there's actual disasters, right? You know, you think about a child falling, you know, face first, they pop right up. If any one of us falls face first and we don't get our hands down, it's the ER, right? We're out cold, right? And so God made babies, you know, in a, in a good way to be able to, to, to bounce up. It's also fun to think about this. We expect falls from a, from a new walker. Spiritually speaking, I hope community groups, I hope church when we gather, um, that we are not expecting perfection. I hope that we celebrate the tiniest of steps. And then once they get there, the, the other walker turns them around and sends them on their way again, right? And, and each step is celebrated I mean, full-on cheering, video, YouTube, send it to the people around the world, celebration. And we ought, to, we ought to have a keen eye for the fact that, wow, that's a work of the Spirit in your life. There's no way your flesh would ever have dreamt of doing that. That's a work of the Spirit in your life. Well, what did you do? You came to church seeking the things of God. That's a work of the Spirit. You opened your Bible in the middle of the week, not when the pastor told you to. That's a work of God. You began to open your mouth. You began to see need. You began to engage your community. All those things, those are, those are giant steps of faith that we ought to be celebrating. But it all begins with simple childlike steps. 
Each person that we've looked at responded to God, and it completely changed their story. And on the one hand, we're looking at the people, but on the bigger picture, remember we're just talking about the fact that, that God's still the hero. There are still people in need, and he's still inviting people uh, in, into being a, being a part of, of his salvation story. And so the bigger question is, what, what are we learning about God in all of this? What do we see about God? One of the things that I've seen, if, if you look over here to my right and your left, this is our refrigerator. That's our children's art. And we've been blessed to have children just draw our pictures each week. Your challenge, if you're new to the program, is to go through and try to figure out what each of those is. Uh, because kind of like, you know, kids have a language that the parents are like, oh, yeah, he said this. And everyone else is going, huh? You know, scratching their head. Um, some of the art will be easy to figure out, some not so much. Um, but as you look at each one of those, what, what I began to see is this. Um, it's, a, it's a well-known truth, but it's just that disciples aren't mass-produced. I mean, coaches understand this. Parents of more than one child understand this. Well, there's differences. Doctors understand this. There's not just one prescription for everyone. You know, take three aspirin and call me in the morning. You know, uh, that's great for some things. But disciples aren't mass-produced, and, and God is... Uh, in the business of handcrafting people. He's, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Just look at some of the things that God gave from our series. God gave Abraham a blessing. God gave Joshua a, a mentor. He gave Deborah a song. He gave Gideon an army. He gave Jacob a limp. He gave Esther a crown. And today he gives Joseph a dream. Jesus comes along and there's the same pattern with him. He's stern with the rich young ruler. He's tender with the woman caught in adultery. He's blistering with the scribes. He's challenging with his disciples. He's gentle with the children. And he's gracious with the thief on the cross. I have this that I keep right below my monitor um, on, on my desktop. And you can't really see what it is, but it's an arrowhead. And probably a couple of years ago, we were just talking about, about some of the vision of the church and some of the things that we want to do. And one of the things we just called out and identified was that disciples are made much more like arrowheads than some other, you know, other man-made product that we have that just kind of comes cranking off of an assembly line. And some of the thoughts, some of the thoughts behind that um, are, are just this. It takes a creator, it takes someone with vision to understand what the end goal is, what the point is, if you will, to know which parts to, to chip away. And that's God working in our lives. And so that's why, you know, as I come up and stand up here, and we're going to talk about Joseph this morning. This is 13 chapters in your Bible of narrative about an individual. There's not many people in Scripture that, that get that much spotlight. And so imagine sitting in my shoes for a second and saying, okay, God, there's at least 13 chapters of this guy's life. What do you want to say to your people? How do you want to feed your people? So it's really an act of faith to stand up here and, and to try to pick a few key points out of Joseph's life to, to feed you. But here's what I rest in. The Holy Spirit is active, and the Holy Spirit knows how to take even the words and the points that I draw out and to, and to, to apply it to the individuals that are here. All right. That's in retrospect. Um, as community groups this week, uh, and I know some of you are taking a break for summer, we're ramping those back up, but some of you are still engaged. Uh, in, your group, in your group questions this week is this, is to, is to go back and to think back a little bit on this series. One of my nightmares that I would have is this, is that we would invest, this is the 20th week in this series. We could have gone 60 weeks easily. There's a lot of characters in the Old Testament. We took 20. 
is to take 20 weeks of our lives, at least, you know, roughly 20 hours of our lives, and to pour into that and to dissect it and to read the scriptures and to pray about it and to just end it, wrap up, boom, what's the next topic? And off we go, just talking about more things. Talk, 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 talk. Instead of just even pausing for a moment to say, okay, God, what, are, what did you teach me in this? Let's go back and just reflect. What, what were the characters that really nailed me? And what were the commitments I made eight weeks ago? Am I still walking in those? God, would you, would you stir to mind the things that, that you've taught me from your Old Testament so that we don't just have these examples put before us, but that we would actually learn from them? All right, that's just kind of review and, and moving forward. Here's, our, here's our, our final two. Today we're looking at Joseph, so you can turn to Genesis, first book of the Bible, chapter 37. That's where we're going to begin this morning. And then the last one is, is a, a unique kind of character. It's creation. And creation's been invited by God to point to his glory. And you know where we're going to have that service? Out in the Redwoods. We're going to all be camping next week. Not all of us. But if you show up at this church building next Sunday at either 9 o'clock or 1045, you will most likely be all alone. Or you'll be with other forgetful people, which is great. You can have a prayer service about your memory, right? Um, or you can, you can come camping with us. There's, there's almost the, you know, a, a giant significant chunk of our church goes camping once a year. And one of the things that we found and we knew would go on with two services is that there are people that come every week to second service and you come to first service and you cannot really engage with each other or see each other for weeks or months. So one of the things about a work day, two, week, two Saturdays ago, is you get to just sit there and have a work project with someone that you get to, normally to have a 30-second conversation with on a Saturday. I got to do that. It was awesome. It was so fun to just sit and have an unhurried conversation with someone I had seen for a couple of years. And literally, we haven't had very long conversations before. This campout is another um, effort for us to just say, let's not have two services. Let's all come together. Let's be outside in the forest together. Um, and, and we're going to have our church service out there. We've been doing this now for, I don't know, four years or, or, or so. Um, and if you are not into camping, I'll pray for you because uh, it's really fun. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I get it. I, I genuinely get it. Um, show up for the day. It's Memorial Park. It's about uh, maybe 45 minutes or so from here. Um, man, we would love to have you come just for the worship service part of things. Um, we're actually going to have, uh, we're gonna have a, a baby dedication. We've got some really, really cool things going on uh, next week. So that's next week. We're going to be talking about, um, about creation uh, as we uh, you know, sit in, in God's creation. Um, <coughs> all right, this morning, Joseph. There is a lot of talk and a lot of stock that is put into having your dreams come true, right? The older that all of us get, the more we realize that we're thrilled that we didn't have all of our dreams come true because they would have turned into nightmares, right? Um, I'm now at an age, I used to think I wanted to be an NFL star. Um, that was fun until all my friends grew in junior high and I didn't, right? And I think about it now and I think, wow, that would have been potentially a nightmare if I was in the NFL, I mean, let's say that for whatever reason, that dream did come true, and I'm in traction, right, the rest of my life. Or, or potentially just the, 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 the spoils of wealth that we just see person after person after person succumb to, and they, you know, they, they trash their faith for the cares of this world. Uh, maybe you have some of those that you think, wow, yeah, those were, those were dreams I had. I'm sort of glad those didn't come true. 
At the same time, we look at someone like Joseph, and Joseph is a guy who could tell you quite, about, quite a lot about um, dreams coming true. Uh, as I said, we're, we're going to kind of try to cover 13 chapters. Don't worry, we're going to get through it in under four hours, I hope. Um, <laughs> nervous laughter, right? <laughs> See, serious? Um, all right, let me give you some summary. I'm going I'm to take giant chunks of space where you need to go back and read this for yourself because this is loosely translated, okay? But I'm going to kind of summarize for you. Um, I didn't go and Google this, but maybe some of you can. Um, there's probably a list out there of, of you know, the, the top 10 dysfunctional families that are on recorded history, okay, um, like that are documented. And I think of documented dysfunctional families, Joseph's might make the top 10. There is, there is a lot of dysfunction leading up to even just Genesis 37. That's where we pick up the story with Joseph. And then from Joseph on, there's a whole bunch of of dysfunction. Here's just the highlights. Polygamy in his family has left a giant mess in its wake. Favoritism by his dad has caused hatred and murderous jealousy in his brothers. Lying, scheming, and covering up just kind of litter this family story. Okay? This is the, this is where Joseph came from. This is his family tree. There, there are some of you, if you have brothers in the room, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you have brothers. Okay, a lot of you will get this, okay? Again, I came from a family of four brothers, right? No sisters. So the way that we work things out, uh, the only female in my house was my stepmom on one week and my biological mom on the other week. Confusing family, but that's how it worked. And my moms figured out that um, I think they were watching the Nature Channel one day and they realized, wow, boys work things out best the same way that elephant seals do. So we had to let them just kind of duke it out and figure things out. So those of you with, uh, without brothers, that is not what I want to show right now. That's what I want to show right now. Um, those of you without brothers, let me just explain. Uh, in the van, for instance, this was classic. We had, a, we had a 75 Dodge van, and for some reason, the coolest seat was the, was the second row back window seat. I think it's because it's the furthest from the parents, and it signified, you know, whatever, you know, independence or something. So... The oldest and the strongest sat there. That was his spot. The next coolest seat was not a window seat, but an aisle seat over here. Guys always leave space between them, right? Am I right? Yeah. Four bathroom stalls. One guy's here. Where do you go? You never would go next to them. Always you leave a space. That's how it is in a van. That's how it is everywhere for guys, okay? So one space. Here's the next brother over here. Back seat is the second coolest spot. Now, I was third in line. I'm third in the pecking order, so... Front seat, near the parents, that, that goes down in points, but window seat, that's pretty cool because I'm mimicking my oldest brother, right? That's good. The youngest in the family uh, space is right here on the aisle seat, front row, okay? Now, um, that's just pecking order. I see that, and I just get that. I watch kids in Costco line. I go, I get it. They're, in their, they're elephant seals. They're working it out. They're figuring it out. This is how brothers do things. Now, here's why I'm bringing up elephant seals in church. Joseph is number 11. Count them, 11. He's 11th in line, okay? He's the 11th smallest elephant seal. And he comes one day talking to the, all the other elephant seal brothers, and he says, hey, I had this cool dream. Let me share it with you. Some of you don't know the story, so I'll enlighten you why there was just laughter. He essentially says this. Hey, there is coming a day, probably soon, where all of you elephant seals are going to bow down and serve me. And then just for kicks, he says, oh, yeah, and the parents too. Mom, Dad, you're in on this. You're going to come and bow low to me. 
That's, that's his dream. So he shares it with his family. He dutifully shares this vision that he has. Now, there are essentially, this is a little bit, by the way, uh, Steve Jobs is dead, but if Steve Jobs were alive and he were walking through his campus at Apple up in Cupertino and an intern walked up and he saw Steve Jobs and his little you know, leadership core and he said, hey, I had this cool vision, Steve. Here's how it goes. It's a little bit like that. It's hard for us because we don't even really get the mindset of how giant of a deal this is that birth order and then parents are somehow submissive and subservient to the 11th elephant seal. We don't get that. It's really hard to get our heads around. But that's what it would be like a little bit. You think the intern probably wouldn't last long at Apple if he went and told Steve Jobs that. There's essentially two camps on Joseph's teen years. By the way, he's a teenager when he says this. Camp number one is this, is that he is godly and he's just kind of naive maybe, um, but, but he's upright in, 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 in sharing this news with his family. Camp number two is that he's a little bit prideful, a little bit bratty, and he's, and he's sharing it, not naively, but to kind of exert some power. Here's what's interesting. The scriptures don't tell us. The only thing the Bible tells us is the behavior. And sometimes you have to, there, there's guesswork there. We don't know. We don't know what, what, what he was doing in, in that moment. Um, and so you can, you can read it for yourself and, and see for yourself of, of, of what you think might be going on. <clears throat> now, if you were uh, in the family counseling business and this family came to you, um, here's how you might have counseled them. I mean, just begin to think how you might counsel this dysfunctional family. Okay? Not uncommon for dysfunctional families to finally reach out and say, we need some help. Um, you, might, you might share with this youth... Um, you know, buddy, you might be careful with these dreams um, because you don't want to base your entire life on something kind of subjective like a dream. I mean, how do you know if it wasn't, you know, some bad food the night before? How, how do you know this is, this is real? So you don't want to base your, your whole life on that. Uh, he might recommend some counseling on humility for him and, and respect, um, you know, uh, for, for his elders to, to the rest of the family, they might say, you know, little Joe's going through a rough time. Teenage years are rough. Uh, let me show you some verses about loving the unlovable, uh, you know, forgiving those who don't deserve it, being patient with those who are prideful, whatever it might be. I might even quote 1 Corinthians 14.33, saying that God is not a God of confusion, and the only fruit of this dream so far is discord and confusion. Now, if you counseled all of that, you'd be wrong on every single account of that. And yet, frankly, some of that sounds like really good counsel for little Joe and his family. Here's the point of that. As we move forward in these things, and part of what's recorded in here, it's not just some neat, slick thing. Well, God's not a God of confusion. The fruit of this is that there's been discord. must be not from God. God tends to stir things up sometimes. So you can't grab that verse and apply it universally here. As it turns out, God was speaking to Joseph. He was inviting Joseph to play this major leading role in the salvation story. Now, when you try to think about what, what was Joseph invited into, I could have phrased this a lot of different ways, but the word favor keeps showing up in, in this storyline. And so the, the invitation is that Joseph would be favored. God invited Joseph to be a favored one. Um, I told you Genesis 37. Go to Genesis 39. Um, when you talk about divine favor, that's, that sells a lot of books. There's a lot of discussion about this. Um, how, how do we get it? How do we keep it? 
Um, is, this a, is this a trivial matter to get God's divine favor, or is it this pivotal matter in our life? And so there's all kinds of discussion about, about divine favor. When you think about corporate favor of God, you think about the USA. If you traveled outside the USA, you realize, wow, there's a, there's a favor on this country. I know there's a lot of problems and a lot of things wrong, but the fact of how your morning went and the things you didn't have to deal with, and if you thought about other countries and what's going on right now, you would say, yeah, there's, there's God's staying hand of favor against evil right now, even just on my commute in here to church on a sunny morning. We, we looked a couple of weeks ago for, um, for when Moses was raised up, there was this kind of corporate favor given to Israel, where God said, I've heard the cries of your people, and now's the time. You're no longer going to be slaves anymore. I move with compassion, and I'm going to give them uh, favor by, by, by moving now in this way. There's also a few uh, cases. Let me just point out a couple. Um, Noah found favor with God. Mary was told by an angel of God, don't be afraid. You have what? Found favor with God. So there's a few specific instances in Scripture where although you could say if you were the people of God, you're favored, there's also a few times where God comes and says specifically, you have found favor. Can you imagine being a teenage girl and hearing from an an angelic being that frightened you to death saying you're favored by God? How would that alter your life? I mean, how would that change you forever to know, wow, I I am favored by God? There's great news. The Bible encourages and invites us crying out to God for his favor. In fact, the Bible does so repeatedly and loudly. There's this term, um, honanai, which means to be gracious to me, and it appears in the Psalms a bunch of times. Here's, here's a couple of examples. In loneliness and pain, Psalm 25, 16 says this, Turn to me, he's crying out to God, and be gracious to me, for I am affl- lonely and afflicted. Tells us to do this in our distress. Psalm 31, 9. Be gracious to me, O God, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul, and my body also. Some of you walked in this morning with a pile of sin on your back. In sin. Psalm 51, 1. David cried out this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. There's this sense in the scripture that says... Ask God for it. Seek it out. Seek out God's gracious favor in your life. The word favor just means acts of kindness, displaying one's pleasure with an object. Remember last week, God's singing over us? It's the favor of God. Now, I want you to look in Genesis chapter 39, verse 21. That's where we're going to start our story. Um, And it says this. Genesis 39, 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. Stop for a moment. You might read that and say, man, lucky Joseph. I want to be Joseph. What a great story. Steadfast love of God and he's found favor. So I want you to read on because when you stop at places like that or you hone in and don't let the rest of Scripture speak, you become a cult leader and make the news. And I don't want any of you to make the news for that reason, okay? What happens is people talk about God's divine favor, and they mean something that God often doesn't mean by that. So we want to let the Bible speak of what it is. Let's read on. Here's what the verse continues to say. In the sight of the prison keeper. Wait, wait, wait. What? what? You know, again, if you jump into the story, you say, wow, he's with God. He's, uh, you know, showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the prison keeper. So that means what? He's in prison. What we're going to see with Joseph's life, we're not going to take the time to see it, but there are all these kind of 
peaks and valleys in his life. And what we see is that God is favoring him. He's favored by God when he's on top of the world, literally, and he's favored by God when he's down in the dungeon and, and forgotten. And again, I, I won't take the time to do this, but if you read these 12 chapters, you will just see this pattern emerge and see what divine favor looks like. Bottom line is this, being favored by God can be confusing. Just ask everyone that's recorded in Hebrews 11. It can be confusing to be favored by God. I'm getting sawn in two right now for my faith. And yet, I'm favored by God. That's a little bit confusing. Gosh, I'm trying to really honor the Lord in these different ways, and everything in my life, circumstantially, is taking a southward migration together. That's, that's conf- confusing for us. But being favored by God is really all that ultimately matters. Jesus tells the story, it's a parable of a guy who comes across something in a field, it's a treasure, and he buries it again. He goes and he sells everything that he has so that he can buy this field and possess this treasure. It's a picture of the kingdom of God. It's a picture of having favor with God. And he's saying that at that point, nothing else mattered except to obtain the favor of God in this way. So as the favored one, Joseph lived what I'll call an interesting life. It looked different than how he or any of us would have drawn it up. And as you read through Joseph's life, you realize, wow, Joseph is one of those types of Christ. He's a pointer to the Messiah. What I want to do is show you four examples of this. Joseph and Jesus both were favored by God. And what I want to show you is I want to show you some parallels in their life and the, the lesson that is not to be learned here is that we would mimic Joseph's specific circumstances um, in hopes that we then could be favored by God. That's not the lesson. Remember the idea that God shapes people individually like an arrowhead? So what we want to do is, is just get a, get a snapshot and say, well, here's someone we know was favored by God. We get to see the end of his story. Here's another one, Jesus, that we know was favored by God. We get to see the end of his story. And just get to, get to draw some, some pictures from that. So, if you're taking notes, you can write down uh, one, two, three, four, and we'll cover them uh, fairly quickly here. Number one is this. As, a, as favored ones, uh, Joseph and Jesus both were loved by the Father and hated by their brothers. Look at Genesis 37, 3. So back to 37 uh, and verse 3. It says this. Now, <coughs> Israel, that's Joseph's dad, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, many of you uh, know that part of the story, even if you're not uh, well-versed in the Bible, the coat of many colors, right? And so dad loved him more and gave him this, this sign of that. So deep was his dad's love for Joseph that when he came across the news that he thought his son was dead, here's what he said. He said, I will grieve to my deathbed. I will never be comforted. That's how deep his love was for Joseph. Now, (coughs) excuse me. Jesus was loved by the Father. At least three times in the New Testament, we have a a record of a voice from heaven. God the Father calling out uh, these words. This is my beloved Son, Uh, with whom I am well pleased. That one was from Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. 
we know that Jesus was loved by the Father as well. As you can imagine, um, this outpouring of love from Joseph's father didn't sit well with the other elephant seals, right? They weren't happy about that at all. Uh, in fact, what it created in them, and favoritism does this, um, is it creates, it creates problems. They were bigger, meaner, older, uh, and had more numbers. So they do what all you know, angry elephant seals do. They sell their sibling into slavery. Right? That's, what, that's how the story goes. They're like, look, there's more of us. We all are united in one thing. We hate the guy with the multicolored jo- a coat. Right? Let's deal with it. Let's figure this problem out. Genesis 37.4, next verse, it says this. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. How did Jesus' life go? His own brothers, half-brothers like Joseph's, didn't believe him. And in John 1.11, it says this. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Both Jesus and Joseph had enemies within their own family even, but their own people, that was so great that their enemies conspired to kill them. So this was not a minor disagreement. This was, this was hatred. All right, number two. Joseph, as the favored one of God, left home to become a slave, as did Jesus. Joseph's brothers made plans to kill him, but at the last decision, they kind of made this quick business decision to make a, make a dollar off him, Right? So instead of killing him, they decided to make up a story about him being killed by wild animals. And voila, problem solved. No more Joseph, more love from dad, plus we got some extra cash out of the deal. That was their plan. didn't quite go according to that. You can read all about it. Joseph ends up as a slave, and then he ends up in the house of an Egyptian ruler named Potiphar. So unwillingly, he goes and becomes a slave in the house of Potiphar. What happened to Joseph was out of his control, but it was a foreshadow of Jesus who willingly did the exact same thing that Joseph did. Philippians 2.7 says this of Jesus. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Now, again, you have to humanize this. You have to envision in your mind what it would be like to live in a privileged elite home and to go from that to being sold into slavery. And just to go through the, the dramatic change of that and what your life is now like in a foreign land with foreign customs, with foreign food, and you're now at the very bottom of things. And it's your own family. Did I mention this family was dysfunctional? Your own family that caused this directly to you. But as slave, Joseph pleased his master, but he ended up suffering for it. He was tempted, but Joseph honored God. He was falsely accused, and he bore punishment unjustly. Those of you who know anything about Jesus are hearing the parallels right now. As a slave, Jesus completely pleased the Father. He was tempted, but honored God. He was also falsely accused, and he suffered wrongly, mocking, degradation, crown of thorns, a pierced side, and then death by crucifixion, all for being truthful and righteous, and for Jesus, all willingly. And by choice. Number three, Joseph bore much fruit through his suffering. God made a promise to Abraham. Remember, he blessed him. And one of our pictures over here is is Father Abraham with all the stars of the sky. God promised him a nation, and he also promised suffering for his people. My people are going to suffer. That's what he told him. And now here's favored Joseph 
one of Abraham's offspring, suffering much, but it's not in vain. After living through the hardship, God raises um, Joseph up, and there's a lot more to the story that you'll need to read, but he raises him up to second in command to Pharaoh of all of Egypt, one of the most powerful nations in the whole region at the time. When he gets to that position, what Joseph didn't do is almost as instructive and as enlightening as what he did do. Think about this. If you had all that past hurt, all those betrayals, and now you had all this power and all this resource, what would you do? If you could have sought out your brothers and you had a special forces elite unit at your disposal with all the modern weaponry, what would you do? Maybe you would have gone to the cupbearer whom Joseph, while he was there, he said, hey, remember me. And, you know, it's almost like a scene out of Dirty Harry. You come up, you remember me now? You know? I mean, I mean, you start to play this out and go, what if that really happened to me? Here's the reality. Some of you can't let go of someone cutting you off on the freeway yesterday. Because you were violated. Your lane was violated, right? Much less offenses that we can sometimes hold a grudge and be very, be very angry and belittling to other people about and so what he didn't do was, was really powerful. Instead, we get a glimpse into the heart by what he names his kids. Flip over to Genesis 41. In Genesis 41, people would name their kids. We kind of name our kids like we don't want it to rhyme with anything weird on the school playground, right? We think of that. We want it to sound cool. I know the meanings of all my kids' names because me- meanings of names do matter to, 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 to me. But it's on a different level. Uh, we had some people, some African um, nationals that, were, that lived with us, and, and, and we befriended, they befriended us, and um, they, had, um, they had Kip Kamea and Kip, uh, Kip Chumba, and one meant baby born in the foreign land, he was born here, uh, and they were from Kenya, and then baby born in land with no water, that was when we were going through a severe drought, so that's how they named their kids, they, they named their kids, you know, um, one of my kids was, was born, uh, the front page was um, impeached. It was when Clinton got impeached. So I'm glad I didn't name, you know, baby born on the day that the president was impeached. You know, I don't know what that name means somewhere, but it's probably not as cool as my kids' names. But what we get to do is we get to see the heart of Joseph by what he names his children. Look at Genesis chapter 41, starting in verse 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. God has made me forget. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Do you see it? Here he was through all of this suffering, all of this wrong. And he says, God's made me forget, and God has made me fruitful. Do you know that forgiving and forgetting is possible? But it's not man-made or woman-made. It's not manufactured. It's a divine gift of God. There are some people that you look at and go, how could you ever forgive them? In fact, there's others that would accuse you of doing wrong for being forgiven. To a Christian, there's a really simple answer. Do you know how much God has forgiven me? Rob, you're right. He does know the half of what you've done. And the fact that he knows us, and the fact that we continue to violate the sovereign king and receive grace makes it possible for us to be forgiving of those whose offenses against us are minor in comparison. Forgiving and forgetting is a divine 
gift. And where the bitterness and the lingering rage and the hunger for revenge should have been, it was instead replaced. Not only just gone, like it's a a missing hole, but you'll see, God actually fills it with good things. Joseph is just a pointer. There's a greater Joseph, and that's Jesus. He truly becomes salvation by his suffering. Just write down Hebrews chapter 5, 8 to 9. It says this, Even though Jesus was God's Son, He learned obedience from the things He suffered. In this way, God qualified Him as a perfect high priest, and He became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey Him. Number four is this. As the favored one, Joseph had a keen understanding that he was sent by God. The story goes on, there's great famine in the land. Again, God predicted this through Joseph and a dream. The rejected Jew, that would be Joseph, would, would end up being used by God to bring salvation not only to Jews, but to all of these Gentiles. Does this sound even remotely familiar to another rejected Jew? The way he uses Joseph in this is that Joseph gets put in charge of a, of a national program to store up food, to store up grain for these famine years that are going to be coming. Lo and behold, his family, desperate for food, come to Egypt. They appear before Joseph. They don't recognize him, and Joseph wisely kind of feels them out to see what, what's the status of dad's well-being, and he's kind of testing them in some different ways. And finally, turn over to Genesis 45. He reveals them uh, to his brothers, to these long-lost brothers that think he's dead and gone, who he is. And it says in Genesis 45, verse 4, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt, And now, what's the first message to his brothers? And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here to preserve life. Verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler over all of Egypt. I mean, do you see this sense of divine call that has been instilled in Joseph? He understands that although other people are involved in the circumstances, God is sovereign. I don't know how you would describe what you think Joseph's view of God is, but I would say the word huge comes to mind. Ruler over all. That's his view of God. That's the God he's placed his trust in. The favored one tells his brothers, don't be angry with yourselves. Again, it's not just it was forgive and forget. It was forgive and forget and let me remove the bitterness and the rage and the malice that you would have toward others and let me replace it with kind words. Let me replace it with actual care for those who sold you into slavery. If the Bible's true, then that same all-powerful God has grace sufficient for your story. I know what some of you are. I can already predict the reactions. Yeah, but Dave, you don't know what's happened to me. You don't know the kinds of things that have been done to me. Don't you love the story of Joseph? Don't you love the story of Job? I mean, these are people in the scriptures to say, there's probably someone worse off than you, actually, and God came through. Maybe you're on the other side of that coin. You don't know the things that I've done. Beautiful picture. Joseph is a kind of Christ. He's a pointer. Here he is. 
extending grace and mercy. And not only that, care for the well-being. Don't be angry with yourselves about this. God's in control of this. Jesus, the favored one, extended forgiveness even to those who were in the act of nailing them, nailing him to the cross. Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus, like Joseph, was sent by God. A few times in this passage, Joseph just got saying, God sent me here. God's doing this. Yeah, you sold me into slavery. God's the one who sent me here. <coughs> Genesis 5.20 says, Not only did God send me here, but he meant it for good. As for you, you meant evil against me. Genesis 50.20 But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. These are the same brothers that sold him. Romans 8.28 wasn't around at the time, but I bet if it was, he would have quoted it. It says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus embodied that. The story of the cross embodies that. By way of RSVP, RSVP is us responding. Responde, s'il vous plaît, is what that means, right? So by way of response this morning, I just thought I'd throw French in. I don't get to do that very often. Some of you are like, you butchered it. All right, remember these shushers from last week. They show up in Joseph's life. I said this a couple of weeks ago. They always do. If you ever speak up for God, the shushers will always come, every time. Here's, here's your response to that. Don't listen to the shushers. Chapter 37, verse 10, his own father rebukes him. He rebukes the beloved son. He piped down with his dream stuff. I don't think dad liked too much the idea of bowing down. Steve Jobs bowing down to the intern, right? So he rebukes him. And then his brothers in 37.19, it says they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of, his, one, of, one of the pits. Then we will say a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what has become of his dreams. Being favored by God in a dark world always comes with a price, but don't listen to him. The, the shushers will always come and lie and try to bring you down. Joseph heard from God on several occasions that we know of recorded in the scriptures. And so he boldly moved forward in what he knew was from God. Know, trust, and follow the voice of your good shepherd who laid his life down for you. All right, here's, here's a couple of <coughs> takeaways for you. I kept them short. Number one is this. Cherish lasting favor. Here's what I mean by that. There's favor that you can get from your boss, and it lasts for a season. There's favor you can get from your parents, I, I've, I, it's, it's amazing to me how much we all want the favor of our parents. Even if we have evil parents who did evil things against us, it's powerful words for a dad to say, son, I'm proud of you. Some of you have never heard that and you've longed for that your whole life. There's favor you can receive from a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. There's favor you could receive from a teacher. There's favor you could receive from peers or a mentor. But all of that is a mist. It's a short period of time. Our life is like bubbles. I blow them. Hey, look, we're all alive. Where, where do we go? We're gone. In, in, a, in a, relative, a relative blink of an eye, we're, we're gone. So isn't it foolish to build your whole life seeking favor from a bubble, right? 
for a few short years and miss the divine favor that just goes on in either direction for eternity. So cherish, value, find importance, seek after, understand divine favor versus living for people. The world seeks favor from those of this world. The Bible tells us to keep focused on the next. Number two is this, suffer well. Suffer patiently and well. Bear fruit in your pain. That's hard to do. It's the middle of I-5. That's what that is. And you're in the middle of suffering. And by suffering well, here's what I mean by that. You can suffer because of your own sin. And that will bear a certain kind of fruit. Learn from it. But there's another way to suffer for doing what is right. Joseph exemplified doing what is right. He was wrongly accused. He, he, he honored God with his temptation, and he still suffered for it. Finally is this. Go with God. Keep in step with God who calls people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's one alone who will be with you through all the ups and downs, from ruling on top of you know, Pharaoh's kingdom to the dungeon where you're falsely accused. There's only one who will sustain you through everything. God brings Christian family and Christian friends in. That's great. But God alone is the one who equips you with patience when you're in prison, resolve when you're tempted, forgiveness and grace when you're wronged. He's the one to depend on. I want to invite the band up right now. As I do, I just ask you to close your eyes for one moment of reflection, thinking on this. Maybe you've never heard the message of salvation and you need to hear this. That God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. That's the message of God this morning. Romans 10 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You want to know how to find divine favor? You call on the name of the Lord. The last picture I have up here is a broken record. Maybe there's some in here who have forgotten your identity. We've forgotten that we're favored ones. We've forgotten that we're members of God's family. And like prodigal sons, we're wandering, running from God. My prayer for you is that the story of grace, the story of God's favor, wouldn't become a broken record, wouldn't become redundant in your life, but that it become cherished and valuable once again. God, we need you. Every hour we need you, and this hour is no different. I pray that the life and truth of your word, of Joseph, of Jesus, would soak into the places that need your grace to come into. I pray that even now as we sing, as we continue in worship, that you would minister, God, to where we are at in ways that we need, as only you understand completely. In Jesus' name, amen.